Amen. Thank you so much, Dave. If you want to open up your Bibles to Daniel and chapter 3, we're going to be finishing off uh, this chapter today, uh, the second half of the message that I begun uh, a few weeks ago. So Daniel chapter 3. <coughs> Excuse me. So as we remember, last time out, we were considering the first half of this chapter, and we were looking at Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. We were looking at it as a prototype, an archetype for all forms of false worship. <coughs> Excuse me. Today, we're going to be turning our attention to the second half of the chapter, and we'll be considering the deliverance of these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. So we read in the second half of this chapter uh, that it's the Chaldeans that, that report the three men to King Nebuchadnezzar. No doubt they were looking for an opportunity to cut the Hebrews down to size after they'd risen to prominence, to report to Nebuchadnezzar that these men had done something wrong. And uh, I, I don't doubt they did this with some level of glee, you know. Uh, these three Hebrews wouldn't bow down to the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the, and the Chaldeans were probably thinking, here's our chance to redeem ourselves. Because, of course, you remember in the preceding chapter, Daniel chapter 2, um, that they were unable to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And uh, it was, in fact, Daniel, one of the Hebrews that could. So they're looking for a way back in to the favor of the king. <clears throat> and we read here that uh, Nebuchadnezzar flies into a rage that these three men have not bowed down. He hears the report. But I want you to notice something. To Nebuchadnezzar's credit, he doesn't immediately have them cast into the fire. He wants to establish the truth of the report before acting upon it. And I think this is one of the great wonders of Scripture, that the Holy Spirit can instruct us as the children of God, even through the actions of a despotic pagan king. So what is the lesson that we're to learn here? I think it's this. I think it's don't be too hasty. Don't be too hasty to act upon a negative report about someone else and sometimes it's really tempting to do that isn't it when we hear something about somebody and maybe it it feeds something in us it feeds certain insecurities in us it's very easy to pass judgment isn't it without checking that report out and Nebuchadnezzar to his credit resists that urge and has them brought before him to ascertain the truth of the matter so he has them brought before him and he says, do you not serve the gods, worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe and every kind of music, fall down and worship the image I've made. It will be well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you? out of my hands so Nebuchadnezzar is giving the men one final chance to absolve themselves one last chance to bow down and to worship the image if they will do as they're told this second time then all will be well and good 
Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego have already withstood incredible pressure. Once when they didn't bow down before the throng of leaders and now they're in the presence of an even greater challenge. They have to withstand the king to his face. Now, we live in an age where the same dark powers that were at play in Babylon 2,600 years ago are still at play now. And there is a growing pressure upon Christians to compromise in their worship. In certain nations, to worship Yahweh <coughs> excuse me, is punishable by death. And though there isn't, <coughs> excuse me, if somebody give me water, that'd be great. <coughs> and though there isn't a persecution level of that scale in this country, um, there is a strong and coercive movement in culture uh, to get Christians to accept certain things that are often uh, at odds with the Christian worldview. And the things that Christ, um, the culture wants to accept and to celebrate, um, they can be things like you know, truth claims about the origin of mankind, where we came from, or they can be, thank you so much, they can be truth claims about maybe human sexuality or, or gender. And um, though they aren't, though these things aren't in themselves tacit denials of Christianity, they undermine the warp and the woof of the, of the Christian worldview. So to accept them would be to, to compromise, to compromise upon true Christianity, to be compromised on the gospel. Um, and I think now in this age, you are not simply allowed to be silent on these issues. Uh, culture wants you to celebrate them. And if you don't celebrate them, uh, then you must be cast into the fiery furnace, so to speak. And, um, you know, I, I feel it's a very similar spirit that's at work in this age that was at work in Babylon 2,600 years ago. And so many of us, I think, in the church all across the world have been silently resisting these things for years, um, silently going about our business and, and trying not to raise hackles. And that's good and that's commendable. But there is a time coming, and I think there is a time now that is, uh, where culture isn't any longer happy with you just remaining silent about these things. You, you must outwardly celebrate with culture about what culture believes concerning gender, sexuality, uh, the nature of humanity. And if you're not found celebrating these things, then you're questioned. Why aren't you celebrating along with us? Why are you not pro this? Why are you not anti this? And by not standing with the world and affirming these things, you're deemed to actually be causing harm. It's not neutral anymore. So I think it's very interesting to see that same spirit, that same divisive spirit at, at play in the world today. So the question is, how do we then respond? How, how do we then respond as Christians in the face of this pressure which is growing? Should we protest angrily and loudly? Should we let them have both barrels? Or should we publicly bow and say the right thing but privately uh, continue to believe God's word? 
Well, I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response to the king actually gives us some healthy guide rails for how to behave in this present situation. Listen to how they respond to Nebuchadnezzar. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God who we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So they don't fly off the handle. They don't start telling the king that he's evil, that he's going to be judged, that he's wrong. And they don't even complain about the severity of the king's decree. I think that's one of the hardest things to learn as a Christian is is not to uh, react with, with anger and righteous indignation and scorn in the face of what is real injustice. And to be honest, I think the way they respond uh, is, is a sign, a real sign of God's grace at work in their lives. Um, and when we imitate them, we're imitating the Lord. We're imitating Christ who Isaiah says that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his, his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a, a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. So we're imitating Christ in, by following the example there of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But equally, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't cave, did they? They, they didn't cave in. They, they didn't attempt to bargain with the king and say, okay, well, you know, we'll do this, but if you will retain our position of influence, they, they don't look for a compromise. They don't look for a way out. They don't look for a convenient path out of what faces them. They accepted their fate and they accepted that their stand for truth was going to bring them death. They accept it. And their response, I think also, uh, reveals three incredible truths about God's nature. About God's nature, his character, and his sovereignty. Firstly, they say, our God who we serve is able to deliver us. He's able. I I want you to know this. In all of your trials and struggles, persecutions, sufferings, God is able. God is able. He's all-powerful. He's able to deliver you. No one can stand in his way when he has decided to act. So we remind ourselves of that in these seasons of trial, suffering, persecution, whatever might be coming your way, whatever you might be in, we remind ourselves, God is able. Secondly, they say this, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. The three men not only knew that God was able, you know, that he had the capacity to deliver them, they also had faith that he would deliver them. Why was that? Why would they think that? Well, they had a trust in God's kindness. They had trust in God's love and kindness towards them, his protecting love. And that's to know that the Lord's disposition towards you as his child is always one of love. It's always one of love and kindness. Isn't that incredible? And I think it's easy to feel alone in seasons where we experience suffering, trials, and persecutions. Feeling alone is very natural 
in those situations, isn't it? And the enemy certainly wants you to believe that God has abandoned you, that you're on your own now. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you see, what they weren't doing was they weren't reading their circumstances and looking for the circumstances to tell them what God felt about them. Does that make sense? They, they weren't looking at the circumstances of their life and going, you know, he loves me, he loves me not. That, that was not what they were doing. Because if they were to do that, those circumstances weren't about to tell them anything positive, were they? You know, they, they were about to be thrown into a fiery furnace. And um, there's nothing that they can seemingly do without disobeying God to stop that. They weren't reading their circumstances. They'd already decided in their hearts that God loved them because of God's covenant with them, because of God's word concerning them. How often do we look to circumstances of life, to what's going on around us, to tell us the truth about whether God loves us or not? I know that I can very easily flick into that mode where I'm looking at my circumstances and thinking, where are you? God, do you still, still love me? But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not looking there, were they? Their focus was upon what they knew of God from his word through the covenant that they had with him. And you and I have an even greater covenant than they had with God. We have a covenant through God himself, through Christ, which we can depend upon that God loves us. He will never turn his back on us again, ever. Isn't that wonderful? And thirdly, they say this. They say, but even if he doesn't, even if not, if God decides not to deliver us, we will still not bow. We will not serve your gods. These men recognized and acknowledged something that I think very few Christians are willing to do so today. And that is that God is sovereign over all things. And that sometimes what he decrees to do with our lives might be different than we would prefer. These men realized that. They acknowledged that within God's decree, within his sovereign will, he might have chosen for some reason not to save them from the furnace. And they acknowledge even in that eventuality that God is still good. And he's still worthy of praise. Yeah, I have a friend um, who I remember hearing him speak years ago. He, um, his wife was expecting their second child. And the child was very poorly uh, in the womb and needed constant blood transfusions in utero, which was a very complicated procedure. And I remember my friend standing up and speaking in the middle of that trial. And he said, you know what? Even if our baby dies, God is still good. I thought, Phew. it just wrecked me. That's exactly the same heart that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had, which is even if he doesn't, he's still good. He's still God. It's a hard truth to accept, and I think it's one that we can't accept apart from the grace of God. We have to accept that God is God, and we are not. We must accept that it's him who is the centerpiece of history and not us. We must accept that you know, he will glorify his name in all things. 
even in my suffering. It it changes your perspective on life when you accept these truths. It is difficult, but it changes the way that you live. Many Christians today are not willing for God's will to be any different from their will. You will do this for me, God. My life will pan out this way, and if it doesn't, I will be confused and angry and hurt, and I won't go back to church. You know? And that's honestly, seriously, how many of us have lived and walked for years. And I think there's a lesson here for us from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of how to walk through these times of questioning and and uncertainty and pain. We certainly shouldn't be praying for trials and suffering to come our way, though. Nobody wants that. I was talking to Darren before the service, and we, we were laughing about it and just saying, Nobody wants these things. We certainly shouldn't be asking for them. Um, we, we want peace. We want the Lord's blessing. We, we want to not have to live through these things. But when they do come, and, and they will for all of us, when they do come, it's imperative that we ask the Lord to help us to suffer like Christians. Not like pagans. You know, Suffer like Christians. Suffer like Christ. Knowing even though Lord if it's possible for this cup to pass from me but not your will not my will rather but your will be done that's the heart behind suffering as a Christian we know that as Romans 8 28 says that for those who love God all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose So then we read Nebuchadnezzar flies into a fury and he has these three Hebrews bound and cast into a furnace. And the furnace is so hot, we read, that it destroys some of Nebuchadnezzar's own mighty men. And now we see something truly astonishing taking place. We we read that the king stands up, he looks in through the furnace doors and he sees not three but four men walking around in the flames and they're unhurt and he says that one of the men looks like a son of the gods he calls them to come out of the fire and out they walk and and not only are they completely unharmed but they don't even smell like fire it's like they were never in there the king then honors them he honors the three servants of God he honors Yahweh above all other gods as the God who delivers and he even promotes Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego within his own government. Now briefly before I finish, I want for us to I want for us to appreciate five things about Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego's deliverance from the flames. I want you to see firstly, number 1, that God did, didn't deliver them from the flames, did he? They had to go into the flames. He didn't deliver them from the flames. He delivered them through the flames so often in scripture God delivers his people through trials and not from trials do you see this he delivers Israel through the Red Sea not from it he delivers Jonah in the belly of the whale not from it and he delivers Christ through death not from death So often I think we're expecting God to deliver us from trials and testing. And sometimes he does. Sometimes he does. But 
very often, God chooses to deliver us through the trial, through the fiery furnace, and not from it. Secondly, we want to realize this, that it was in the fire that God showed up. It was in the fire that God showed up, not in the throng in front of the golden image, nor in front of the king, but in the flames themselves. That was where God showed up. And it's in our moments of greatest weakness that God manifests himself more closely, at least we perceive more closely than it ever before. Isn't that wonderful? Therefore, a Christian, you brothers and sisters, you, we have good reason not to fear trials and weaknesses and sufferings because we know that it's in the midst of the flames that God draws the closest. He says in Second uh, Corinthians twelve nine, he said to me, "My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me." Fourthly, um, sorry, thirdly rather, the men were walking about in the fire. Did you catch that? It was four men walking. Now, I don't want to labor this point too much because the scriptures don't, but I think it's interesting. The angel of the Lord and the friends weren't motionless in the flames. We're told they're walking around. So what are we to know or draw from this? Well, they weren't overwhelmed by the flames. They were not preoccupied with looking at the flames. The fire was not able to stop them from walking with the angel of the Lord. I think it's interesting. Maybe there's something to draw from this, but when we face fiery trials, we're to keep walking. We're to keep putting one foot in front of the other, following the lead of the Lord, focusing our attention on him as much as we're possibly able and not focus our attention on the flames. It's a bit like when Peter steps out of the boat and at the minute that his eyes are drawn to the waves, what happens? We start sinking. And, and I, I think this is important. I don't think the four men in the, sorry, the Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, I don't think that was something that they of their own strength did, that they saved themselves by keeping their focus on the angel. I think the angel gave them the ability to walk around in the flames. But I do think there's something interesting to draw from this. When we face trials, um, and God is with us in those trials, it's imperative to keep putting one foot in front of the other. You know, not to sit down, woe is me, oh Lord, I can't do this. I'm, uh, and that is my heart sometimes when I'm surrounded by trials. <laughs> Oh God, help. You know, but instead put one foot in front of the other. Maybe offer up a prayer. You know, maybe read the word, listen to the word, whatever you can do, just keep putting one foot in front of the other, following Christ through the trial. Fourthly, the men were unharmed by the fire. And this is just like Christ when he walks out of the tomb. He's, he doesn't walk out with grave clothes on, does he? He's unharmed by death. He shows no sign of corruption or decay. And these men also came out of the fire carrying no ill effects at all. What does this tell us? Well, it, 
they didn't walk out of the, fly, uh, the fire rather, with scorch marks, did they? They didn't walk out with second-degree burns. And it's a miracle they've survived. They're, they're a bit burnt, but they've lived. It was, it was miraculous. It was a miraculous deliverance. God's deliverance from these situations is always miraculous. When God allows us, his church, for a time to come into seasons of suffering and trial, he does so in order that we would triumph. He does so in order that we would come out the other side without even a hint of the trial on us. That he'd lead us in victory over whatever fiery furnace we have to walk through. God's deliverance will be miraculous. If you're walking through a trial or suffering today, know that. Know that, that there is purpose in your suffering and that God has intended you to walk through that valley so that he can lead you in victory through that valley. So that you'll come out the other side with a testimony. That, that's one of the things we must cling to. You know, suffering is never for nothing, as Elizabeth Elliot said. Fifthly, and finally, the men, after they were delivered from the fire, they were promoted. Did you catch that? Nebuchadnezzar promotes them. Not only does God deliver them from the fiery furnace, but he also saw to it that they were promoted within Nebuchadnezzar's government. I think that's remarkable because these men have refused to do the king's will. They've refused to bow to the image. They've done the one thing that seemed sure to rob them of their influence in the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. And I think it's similar in many ways to the story of Joseph, where his route to power and influence led him through prison, not the natural way to come to prominence. Now I think there is a worldly ideology, very popular, and even very popular amongst many Christians, called pragmatism. Pragmatism. And what it essentially says is that in anything, the ends will always justify the means. For example, if the end is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are to retain their influence in the king's court, then any means they utilize to get there would be deemed good under pragmatism. Even if they were to compromise or play foul, that that would be good because they retained their position of influence in the courts of the king. But that's not so, is it, in the kingdom of God? That's not the way it works in God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, the means are every bit as crucial as the end. The world says that you've got to do all that you can to succeed. You could be aggressive, you could be rude, you could be selfish if you have to be. Whereas we see in Christ and in these three men who are a type of Christ here, we, we see a completely different way we see that they surrendered their needs, their desires and ambitions and chose to follow God, didn't they? Even when it seemed counterintuitive, um, even when it seemed like, well, how can this possibly be the way, God? We're going to be thrown to the fire. You know, you've promoted us within this kingdom and now you're going to just throw us to the fire. But God had a plan, didn't he? God had a plan to deliver them and, and, and this is the way of the kingdom. The means are every bit as important as the ends. And 
not only did Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego retain their positions in Nebuchadnezzar's government, they were actually promoted. They were promoted. And there are many Christians today, I think, who wouldn't be very happy with these three men. They wouldn't be happy with them for taking up positions in this horrible man's government. They'd say, how can you possibly work for this man? How can you further this man's evil intentions? It's not a very Christian thing to do, is it? But it was God that put them there, wasn't it? Interesting. And I believe, for what it's worth, in this day, that God is giving Christians positions of influence before the Nebuchadnezzars of our time. I believe that in this day, uh, that he will continue to do that. And even after Nebuchadnezzar had thrown these three men into the fiery furnace, they continued to serve him. They didn't say, sorry, O king, you know, we, we want our freedom now. You, you've betrayed our trust. You tried to kill us. They actually go and serve him. Isn't that incredible? What a witness. And I want to ask us, I want us to ask ourselves, are we ready to serve God, even if it means serving a Nebuchadnezzar? Even if it means taking unpopular stands, risking our reputation, risking our livelihood? I want for us to ask those questions of ourselves. You know, are we ready to serve God however he chooses that we might serve him? I want for us to remember, brothers and sisters, that even if we're led into the flames, whatever those flames might look like, God will deliver you through them. Maybe not from them, but through them. Just as Christ has delivered his people through the flames of judgment, untouched and unharmed. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of deliverance. We thank you that Sometimes in your sovereign decrees, you might choose for us to walk through trials and suffering. But we know that even in that, you have a plan to glorify your name in all the earth. So Lord, we pray, whatever we might be walking, whatever we might be walking through now, that we would have that same faith that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego had that says, our God is able, our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will still serve him. We pray this in your mighty name, Lord. Amen.